Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event this evening. Thank you for being with us. This evening, we're hosting a conversation about plants. Living as we are in continually turbulent times, being close to plant life, whether that's through our house plants or through going for a walk outside or a trip to Kew Gardens, can help ease our minds, but perhaps most importantly, it helps us to feel connected to the natural world. We have two experts with us this evening who understand this very well, and we're so excited to have them with us. Jonathan Drury is the author of several runaway bestsellers, Around the World in 80 Trees and Around the World in 80 Plants. He's been responsible for more than 50 science documentaries and series on the television, and he's a trustee of such places as the Eden Project and Cambridge University's Botanical Garden. His TED Talks on botanical subjects have been viewed millions of times. Nicholas Spence is an expert in plant health and the international plant trade. She's the UK's chief plant health officer and heads the National Plant Protection Organization. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology and an honorary professor at the University of Birmingham. She was previously chief scientist at the Food and Environment Research Agency. She's also, of course, a keen gardener. Jonathan and Nicola will be in conversation this evening, telling us about their own love of the natural world, about what they've learned during their careers as plant experts, and about the continual importance of plant health. As usual for our conversation format, Jonathan and Nicola will be in conversation for around 45 minutes, and after that we'll have some time for questions from you, our audience, so please do post them in the Q&A box at any time during the event. Without any further ado, Jonathan, over to you. Uh, thank you, and uh, uh, you know, welcome to this conversation, uh, whether you're watching live or, or later on recorded. Um, uh, it's very strange being billed as an expert. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert. I write about things, and that, that's quite different, whereas Nicola actually is an expert, uh, as we'll discover. And uh, first of all, I just want to apologise if, uh, if Zoom gets in the way, because uh, if, if we're sort of interviewing each other, as I hope we are, then uh, it's very easy to sort of look to the audience as if we're cutting across each other, whereas actually the delay in the system means we're just having a normal conversation between us. Um, I remember my father uh, joking with me when I was a child, um, saying, uh, you know, if you don't water your pot plant, the plant health officer might come. <laughs> and so I grew up thinking that the plant health officer was um, uh, something like a, a sort of a, a bogey, a bogeyman or a bogeywoman. Um, uh, you are the country's chief plant health officer. Uh, in in a line or two, because we'll obviously come back to this in more detail. What what what's this, what's your responsibility? So my responsibility is to try and predict what future threats might be to our plants and trees, and to put in place various actions, mitigations to try and prevent. Uh, new pests and diseases arriving or deal with them if they get here. So I advise ministers, uh, stakeholders like industry and the public about plant pests and diseases. Okay, so that, that's pretty clear. And we're, we'll come back to a, 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 There'll be a, a lot of pests and diseases tonight. Um, uh, but first, I just want to share my screen and show um, a, a, a few pictures which uh, we, we've sort of arranged beforehand. And I just want to, um, uh, can, can you see that all right? Can you see that, Nicola? Yes. Yeah, so, so um, what, what's going on there? So this is me about six years old with my parents and we are at Kew Gardens. We're in one of the greenhouses. I'm not exactly sure which one. I thought that was the Palm House. But um, we, we lived, we'll come to uh, the farmhouse. Okay, we lived in London at the time, and we used to go very frequently to Kew Gardens, um, and all of us were really enjoying. That's my brother. I don't think my brother was that interested, but I was absolutely mesmerised by I love, I love this plants. Th this well, is this a fantastic is me one gazing at the palm house with my brother thinking I was a bit mad but um, it's very very iconic this moment here I am gazing across the pond to the palm house uh, wondering you know what glories were within 
And little did I know what an important part that was going to play in my life. Now, if you look very closely, you can see these sort of white uh, pillory things here. Um, and uh, those are sculptures that are outside. And if I just go to the next slide, at roughly the same moment that you were having your um, photo taken, <laughs> uh, there's me with my dad. Uh, when I say roughly the same moment, I mean very roughly, like within a couple of years. Um, but uh, there, there's me with my dad. And I had exactly the same experience as you, that uh, being taken around queue as a child uh, was just the most marvellous um, and, and exciting thing. Um, and uh, just to, uh, uh, for old time's sake, we were at a conference recently, and there we are, <laughs> slightly more grown up. Um, uh, outside um, the Palm House with one of those griffins kind of X number of years years later. Um, uh, now, we, we, uh, we'll dot around a bit because uh, it's easier not to faff around with slides too much. I've got one more slide here, which is a lot later in your, in your uh, it's, you're not a child anymore there, but um, what, what's going on in this one? So this is me um, in Kenya. So as part of my PhD, I did uh, a project on improvement of beans uh, throughout Eastern and Central Africa. So here I am with one of my colleagues from the national program. We're collecting samples uh, in the field so that we can go back and do some laboratory diagnosis. And I, I, so, gather, that, um, um, I gather that women didn't really wear trousers at the time and this caused something of a no. stress. I caused a bit of a stir because this is my sort of standard field equipment, trousers, boots, long T-shirt and a hat. And um, we went to some villages in Uganda where the whole village gathered. Um, they were pointing at me. They were laughing. Uh, I had no idea why. So I had to ask uh, one of my colleagues and they were a bit embarrassed to tell me. They said, it's because you're wearing trousers. Uh, and that was an absolute no-no. So I learned then that I needed to um, wear a long skirt in the field. Not always practical, but um, part of the kind of cultural challenge. And did did girls go into science when you took up science and went to university? Was that uh, was that a thing that girls did? And were your parents kind of in favour? Well, I think. On my course, I, I studied botany at Durham University, and actually there were a lot of women um, that studied botany, um, but not so many that went into science. So I found myself as a kind of young researcher uh, in quite a male-dominated world, particularly when I became a research leader. I'd often be the only female around a table of sort of 30 or so men talking about science and talking about you know, um, our projects and our funding and what we're all going to do. So, um, yes, yeah, sometimes uh, I certainly felt uh, a little bit um, sort of isolated. I, I remember you saying once, um, it might have been when we were both trustees at, at Kew, um, it's ironic that that's where we had our photographs taken, uh, you know, all those years ago. Um, I, I remember you saying that there was a point in your life when you had a sort of aha moment about plants. Can you remember when that was? Well, I think it was when I was trying to decide what to do at university. I studied science A-levels and I was kind of looking at various options. You know, should I go into medicine, for example? Uh, but I just had this overwhelming fascination for plants, uh, which I'd had from a very young age, gardening with my grandfather. Um, and... I sort of realised that I didn't particularly want to kind of study diseases of people. I was I was more interested in plants. So I told my parents I was going to do botany at university and they were a little bit surprised. I think their, their first question was, well, what are you going to do with that? My grandfather was delighted and he started calling me the botanist. Um, and so I ventured into studying botany a little bit unsure about where it was going to take me. But I just had this overwhelming feeling that really, if I was going to do anything, plants were the most important thing in the world because everything starts with a plant. Everything starts with a seed. You know, we eat them, we get medicines from them, animals eat them. They, you know, capture carbon dioxide. I just felt that 
it was the most important thing that I could do. Uh, and so I embarked on my my sort of botanical career. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, everything either eats plants or is a plant or eats something else that eats plants. I mean, it, it, you know, exactly. that, that's it. That's it, really. I mean, there might be some little bacteria at the bottom of the sea and hydrothermal vents or something for the real pedants among us. But the um, but essentially you know, it's only plants that can take really simple ingredients and use the power of sunlight to turn those into things that you can drop on your foot and kick and eat and so on. And, and uh, that's what photosynthesis is. I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, I, I know this sounds like a completely d- dumb question, but I think that um, it might be worth just sort of summing up how plants are different from animals. Hmm. So at a, at a, in its simplest form, plants make their own food. So most plants photosynthesize. I say most because there are some parasitic plants which actually get their uh, food, their nitrogen from other means, you know, either they're insectivorous, although mostly they can also photosynthesize. So uh, they make their own food Generally, uh, they don't move, but obviously, again, there are exceptions. Plants are often anchored by roots, but there are plants that actually do move around. Uh, aquatic plants and you know plants that have uh, deliberately designed themselves so that they move around, so that they can uh, move where the water is, for example. Uh, so, you know, they are complex organisms, but they're incredibly well evolved uh, to make their own food from the most simple ingredients, carbon dioxide and water. And, and a few drops of baby bio here and there. And that's all, all you need, you know, which is and some minerals are helpful, uh, it's a, which is a big, big surprise to a lot of people. Um, but really, the, the, the heavy ingredients are carbon dioxide and water. And there's very little of anything else. And um you know, when, when people express surprise, you know, and, and even disbelief, I often say, well, how often do you have to sort of top up the uh, the soil in your plant pot? Um, not not very often. And we don't have trucks filling in all the sort of soil that the uh, the trees outside here have take, taken out. You know, it's, uh, it doesn't work like that. So, um, you know, do plants get sick in the same way that we do? Absolutely. And I think Uh, It's interesting. Um, I think there's a sort of low awareness about that. But actually, in some ways, uh, the awareness about coronavirus and COVID-19 has made people think much more about health and the fact that a global pandemic. So, you know, the emergence of a disease somewhere in the world that can move so rapidly and affect Uh, basically a vulnerable population globally. And plant disease is very much like that. You get things emerging, mutating. Um, They infect a particular host, and particularly where they meet a vulnerable host in a monoculture uh, that hasn't been exposed to it before, uh, they can really get a grip uh, and kill plants or severely kind of reduce their ability to photosynthesize, to reproduce so, so, uh, and so when you say them. when you say sort of planted all together in a monoculture, of course that's what we do with our modern farming, isn't it? We we yeah. you know a monoculture means just one species all planted together. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, so it, modern it's, it's plant like, breeding has developed, uh, you know, growing one thing because that's easier to plant, to harvest, uh, and our global need for commodity crops that can move around the world, be stored, uh, has led us to plant one thing. And obviously, if a, a new pest or disease emerges and that crop is vulnerable, then it can get wiped out. So, so um, you know, th- this is this is like, uh, you know, during COVID, cramming everyone into uh, Cheltenham race, race course or uh, or what have you to, you know, super spreader event effectively among one species all crammed into one one space is how we plant crops. Um, yeah. If we, uh, you know, wanted to, um, uh, y- you know, if, if, would, it, would it be kind of um, economic to be able to uh, plant in, in another way? Mm. Well, yeah, indeed. And some 
cultures do that. They use companion planting. That's quite common in organic systems. You plant two different uh, crops. You might plant onion with carrot uh, and you get what's called a kind of push-pull strategy. So some uh, pests are attracted to certain things but repelled by others. And by using the combination of of companion plants, and this can actually work at a scale. It's it's used quite widely in Africa, uh, where crops are protected by planting uh, an alternative host that actually attracts the pest away from the crop. So, um, you know, it's used uh, and mixtures are used as well in many crop systems. When I worked on my PhD on beans in Africa, there are very complex mixtures of fasciolus beans, the dried beans, and some farmers plant maybe up to 30 different seed types uh, so that they've got more resilience. And if a pest attacks one seed type with one genetic background, it, it might not attack another. So it gives them food security, essentially. And of course, another way we've made ourselves vulnerable, I guess, is that um uh, you know, we depend, you know, there are, there are thousands, I think, of edible plants that we could be eating, but we depend on this tiny number, you know, wheat, rice and maize uh, or corn, as, as, uh, as it's called in the United States and Australia. Wheat, rice and maize account for half of all our calories. I mean, that that's uh, a kind of doesn't that make us more vulnerable? Absolutely. Um, and obviously, it's important that we've got these commodity crops because they feed large numbers of the population. But there are lots of crop wild relatives and alternatives like sorghum, like millet, um, you know, some of these lesser known grains, quinoa, for example, which has become, you know, quite a foodie favourite. But in some parts of the world, particularly arid, dry places, alternative grains grow better. Part of the challenge, though, is that there isn't that investment in breeding uh, improved varieties of these kind of orphan crops, sometimes they're called, because they're not adopted, they're not researched, they're not invested in. And I also think vegetables are very much underestimated. I mean, they're such an important source of uh, minerals, vitamins, as well as dietary protein and carbohydrate. Uh, and they add to the kind of variety of a diet. But often, you know, we don't get as much investment in vegetable breeding as we do in things like rice, wheat and maize. But presumably, if we ate more vegetables and, and sort out the less usual ones, more research would go into them. And, and it would be Absolutely. better for us at the same yeah. time. Absolutely. I worked on a project in Kenya a few years ago on kale. So we all know kale now. It's very much part of everybody's diet. It's a superfood. Um, and in Kenya, it's the most important vegetable. Um, it's called Sukuma wiki, which basically means push the week in Swahili. So if you plant some kale, and it's the kind of kale where you can cut a few leaves and it keeps growing, you've always got food, even at the end of the week when you might not have uh, anything else, your, your kale keeps giving. And we worked on land races of kale with farmers. So these land races have a kind of complex genetic background. They're not bred by uh, traditional breeding. They're selected over time. And we worked with farmers to sort of look at how they selected their, their kales and how we could help them, you know, make sure that they were selecting for resilience to improve yields and improve food security. So really fascinating work. One, one of the things I, I, I often wonder about, you know, you've got these plants that, as you said, unlike animals, they, they mostly don't move or they move slowly or not very far. They're, they're literally rooted to the spot. And yet um, somehow they survive um, most of the time not being eaten that much. You know, I mean, the, you know, if I look out the window, mo most most things in, in the garden are kind of green and, and sort of doing OK. I mean they must have some pretty tough defence mechanisms to be able to defend themselves against organisms that, you know, in the life of a tree might be going through generations, thousands of generations of evolution, um, mm. you know, while the tree is just sort of stuck there. I mean, that's, 
was sort of incredible. Uh, you know, one, once you start thinking of these pests and diseases, you know, it's sort of amazing that anything survives at all. I know tree defences are incredible. And it's an area of science that is increasingly being studied, um, you know, understanding what happens in the, the chemicals, the biochemicals and the gene regulation in a plant when it's attacked uh, is really fascinating. And of course, it gives us the basis of understanding how resistance might work to protect them. But I'm always struck by trees and their resilience. Um, a couple of years ago, I visited uh, Suffolk on a, a sort of tree um, mission, and we were looking at um, med a meadow with very ancient oaks, so four, five hundred year old oaks. And we were particularly looking at a disease called acute oak decline. And some of these oaks had um, literally open sores, open wounds. We call them bleeding cankers. So you could see that they were being attacked by bacteria. And yet over hundreds of years, they've evolved an incredible resilience. And indeed, many of them were producing callus to protect themselves from invasions sort of in modern times. And of course, they've undergone pressures of climate. Um, and when you look at these trees, it is an incredible history in them of resilience over centuries uh, that we really want to understand. Hence, you know, investing in research on things like oak tree. So, so one of the things that, uh, if I've understood it right, that, that trees manage to do is that they kind of um, a bit like a kind of submarine, uh, you know, where there's there's a hole in the submarine and they shut off the doors uh, to stop the water mm -hmm. leaking everywhere else. The, the tree manages to isolate parts of itself that might be infected um, and just sort of carry on growing elsewhere. Um, uh, meanwhile, keeping this sort of uh, whatever it is, this nasty pest or disease at bay and, and isolated. Is that is that a, a reasonable way of looking at it? Absolutely. And there are several strategies. One of them is called hypersensitivity. So um, in some plants, if they're attacked by a pest or a disease, they're able to literally kill the bit of the plant that's being attacked, and then it will drop off and the source of the pest or disease will go with it. And the, and the bit that's left, in, you know, becomes protected by a sort of thick layer of callus. Um, so that works with some plant species and lots of tree species where they can recover from attack. But sadly, for lots of plants, you know, if they don't have that strategy, they can be very vulnerable. Or if the particular strain of the pest or disease is able to overcome that resistance, then, um, you know, there are problems. There's a very sophisticated mechanism called gene silencing. Um, where when their plants are attacked, it stimulates uh, the, the kind of genetic reaction in the plant, which then, you know, elicits the protection reaction and can give those plants real resistance. So, so it presumably means that um, the, the plant has to have a kind of library on hand of, of lots of things that might happen to it. And then it just sort of pulls Absolutely. off the shelf the, the bit that it needs uh, just at that moment. Yeah, that's I, its I DNA. Want, yeah. I, I just want to go back to um, uh, wheat, rice and maize because, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking that uh, if something happened to one of those, I mean, we've seen something happen to one of those with the war in Ukraine um, and, that, and that's only in one country. Um, you know, if, if there was a disease that affected, you know, um, all the wheat around the world or all the rice or all the maize around the world, that would be, a, you know, we, we would be really running into terrible, terrible catastrophe in many countries. Um, uh, you know, the, the, we've got millions of our own uh, people in Britain in a rich country like ours um, who are uh, food insecure. In other words, they can't, they, you know, they can't rely on, on uh, having enough food. Um, uh, that, that's government figures, you know, that, that would increase, you know, and, and I read about these diseases that have such fantastic names, they're beautiful names, like rusts and bunts and smuts and blotches, uh, all waiting in the wings, all these nasty fungal diseases and so on. 
Uh, and I think we're running out of fungicides um, that that kind of work or, or uh, you know, that because the diseases become resistant. I mean, is this the sort of thing that keeps you awake at night or uh, should we be worried more or, or is it, um, you know, actually sort of very, very unlikely that something could hit all the wheat in the world? Unfortunately, all of those staple crops have real threats right now and actually always have done. And you end up with a kind of arms race between the crop and the disease as to, you know, who's in the lead. So, for example, wheat stem rust is uh, a major threat. And the stem rust is very good at adapting and evolving. So we're constantly seeing new strains evolving in some parts of the world, and then they spread. The spores can actually move on the wind, but they can also get moved by people, by trade. Uh, and then if the wheat is vulnerable, um, then you've got a really serious situation. So there is a global effort on wheat stem rust to try and understand a bit like there is for COVID-19, you know, epidemiologists trying to map the spread of the disease, breeders and geneticists trying to look at how we can further protect the wheat. So it is a constant battle. So there are international centres, there's the international um CIMIT is the maize global center for research IRI is the global rice research institute and these centers uh, are constantly battling uh, and of course you know if the, the the race is being won by the pathogen then that is serious in terms of food security uh, which can then lead to political disruption so you know our population really depends on keeping ahead of these global pests and diseases of our crops. So, so let's talk about bananas for a minute. Um, the um, uh, the Cavendish banana, uh, which is the sort of big bananas that you buy in the shops, that you know is just a, like a kind of that's, that's if you are an Indian uh, or a Bangladeshi or a Pakistani listening to this, then you'll think why oh why oh why do they just depend on the Cavendish banana? Because in South Asia you've got lots of delicious varieties that are different colors and different textures and, and flavors and so on but we like the cavendish because it transports well and uh the the reason we all use that one is that it is um whatever the one was before it we uh you know that sort of succumbed to a disease and of course we bred bananas without seeds we don't want bananas with seeds which means that we have to um uh propagate banana trees uh, using um, sort of like vegetative methods. In other words, you take a cutting effectively and, and sort of plant it somewhere else. And that means that all these banana plants in the world are effectively clones of each other. And of course, if one is susceptible to a disease, they'll all go down with it, just like the Irish potato famine, you know, um, it, it, with one variety of potato that was planted. And uh, I gather that there's a, a new disease of bananas that's sort of waiting in the wings. Well, there are several, actually. There are particularly viruses and fungal diseases of banana. And you're right, um, the Cavendish is kind of globally planted, so it's very vulnerable. Uh, and because uh, banana is vegetatively propagated, so in a banana plantation, as you say, there's no seed, the flowers are removed from the uh, ripening bananas. So farmers rely on a continuous vegetative cycle. Uh, so if any pests or diseases, viruses, there's, there's a, you'll like this, there's a banana virus called banana bunchy top uh, and black cigatoka. So there are several uh, diseases of concern. And again, there is a global research effort um, and there's a lot of science going on in the UK actually to support that, plus genetic resources for banana so that we can look at uh, future sources. There are also uh, programs for using biotechnology to develop more resistant bananas. So again, global effort going on to understand the disease, to try and protect the uh, banana for future generations to enjoy. And it, in some parts of the world, in Uganda, banana is the staple starchy crop. The um, that's the, that's the kind of um, equivalent of the rice or the potato. Yeah, Matoki, it's called. Right, which is a sort of plantain, isn't it? Is that it's right? It's a green banana yeah, and it's yeah. steamed. 
yeah. yeah. You see them in the markets uh, in London, certainly quite a lot. Um, uh, when you said bio, biotechnological, biotechnological approaches, did you mean uh, what would be commonly called genetic engineering? There has been uh, genetic engineering of banana and indeed of several of the staple crops. There's a program for improvement uh, of vitamins in things like rice as well, the Golden Rice Project. So using um, genetic modification, genetic improvement to improve the nutritional value of uh, staple crops like rice. That, that's been an amazing project, that, um, uh, that one. Uh, I mean, the, you know, people feel very strongly or some people feel very strongly about genetic modification of, of plants one way or the other. You have people on both sides. And I, my mm-hmm. feeling is, um, is, is really it's about trust. You know, so where, if it's... Um, uh, a whole lot of kind of not-for-profit organisations um, uh, developing uh, things, uh, you know, like golden rice, which has vitamin A in it, um, which is preventing a whole lot of children that would other goes who would otherwise go blind in in South and Southeast Asia uh, from going blind. I mean that that is fantastic. If you can express insulin in in genetically modified potatoes um, for diabetics, I mean that also seems to me a, a, a no-brainer. Um, but I can also understand, I think, why uh, some people might feel uh, that if profit is the only motive, then, um, you know, we're not always very good at regulating um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, in- industry or, or and self-regulation doesn't always work. So there's a sort of balance there. But I, my guess is that in order to feed the world, uh, we need to, you know, we will depend on on some sorts of genetic modification. Yes, and of course, the technology has changed dramatically. So the new technologies that are are generally called gene editing um, essentially accelerate what could be a natural um, modification over time. It's just speeding up uh, the breeding process. Um, So that involves, you know, a very different type of technology. There are no antibiotic markers, for example, and actually the change is really undetectable um, in the the plant. So I think it's exciting to see how some of this new technology could really benefit the way we can uh, improve varieties, select varieties much more rapidly. Varieties that could have developed through uh, a breeding program, but you know that would might take maybe 10 years. So right now we've seen the precision breeding bill that has, um, you know, been uh, launched in Parliament um, and approval to trial um, crops and plants that have been developed through uh, gene editing. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what what the um, uptake is by breeding companies. It's a really... Um... Kind of in, interesting field, and uh, you know, uh, we, we could do a whole whole session on the <laughs> genetic modification of uh, of organisms. Um, I, I I think we should uh, sort of broaden this out a bit to, um, uh, you know, w- what, um, you know, what you're trying to get the sort of public to do or understand differently, because you know, um, as I understand it you know, one of the reasons that we're more and more susceptible to pests and diseases is partly because things travel around the world a lot more than they used to. Um, So goods and people traveling, bringing things with them. But also, you know, when they get here, they, um, those pests and diseases can have a rather sort of easier ride than they used to, uh, because of climate change. Uh, You know, so they might arrive somewhere that, you know, they would have been rather hostile before. And now, uh, they actually have an, an easy life when they arrive. Um, what What are the sorts of policies that you kind of, you know, you're you're trying to 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 bring in, or to pers- or, or what are you trying to persuade people to do? Well, it's certainly true that the risk from pests and diseases has increased, particularly over the last fifty years or so. You know, we we've got evidence which shows the introduction of several. Uh, invasive pests and diseases that have um, traveled because of global movement in plants, in people, and climate change. So the risk is certainly very real and growing. 
Now, we can't eliminate all risks because, unfortunately, some pests and diseases can arrive naturally. They can blow over the channel, for example. Uh, but our policies that's what happened with are... Ash Di- that's what happened with Ash yes. dieback, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we know that things can arrive. So, you know, we need to come up with policies that deliver what we need in terms of trying preventing introduction but also are proportionate, accepting that you can't eliminate all risk. So, for example, we have strict regulations on the highest risk plants, and we identify those through uh, a process called the UK Plant Health Risk Register. So we look at all external threats. You know, where are they? What's the risk that they might arrive in the UK? How might they arrive? And how do we prevent that pathway? So, so just as an example, I, I was in um, southern Italy recently, and uh, I mean, it's terribly depressing in, in Puglia, which is the heel of Italy. Um, yeah. uh, there's just mile after mile of, it's apocalyptic, mile after mile of dead olive trees um, with this uh, disease called xylella, which I understand is a bacterial disease. Um, and uh, that's one of the things you're trying to keep out of Britain, isn't it? But but we, yes. we, don't, ha- we don't have olives here. How, how would it affect us? Well, Xylella fastidiosa is our, one of our number one threats. And unfortunately, it has a very wide host range. So whilst you've seen it infecting olive in Italy, if it were to arrive in the UK, the biggest threat is to our native trees. It can infect more than 600 different species of plant and tree. So we have very strict controls on all hosts of xylella, particularly the ones that are traded. Uh, And we have a requirement that any plants uh, must come from a pest-free area. They must have a a certification called a phytosanitary certificate, which shows that they've been tested. So these plants would be things like lavender? and Yeah, lavender, um, rosemary. Lavender, yeah, rosemary, olives, all, yeah. all these lovely Mediterranean plants. So, um, yeah, folks, folks they're very strictly regulated. Yeah, don't dream of bringing those back from your holidays, please. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's the kind of trade pathway, which is very tightly regulated. And we do regular inspections. Uh, we have plant health and seeds inspectors who are looking at material either at ports Uh, and airports or at points of destination in the horticultural trade. We do lots of surveillance and we take samples and test it. So we're very rigorous in terms of preventing things from entering and also making sure that they're not here and dealing with them if they arrive. But the public all have a role here. So, you know, we ask people not to bring back cuttings, seeds, plant material when they go on holiday, for example. Uh, to look at where they're sourcing their plants, making sure that they're buying from a reputable source um, and also asking questions about where the plants have come from. Look out for the plant passport on your plant. It should be uh, on the label or on the pot or on the trolley. Uh, Ask questions from your supplier. And just because something's available Um, And for sale on the Internet doesn't mean to say that you should buy uh, plants or seeds. You know, ask about, you know, have they been uh, subject to phytosanitary controls? Uh, So I think we've all got a responsibility to understand, you know, where our plants and seeds are coming from. Ask those questions and be more responsible. And and there are times when, um, you know, you actually have to weigh in with with rules. Um, you know, just yeah. just stop people doing stuff. You know, so that that you know, if you're trading, you have to have those certificates and so on. Tell us about Mango Gate. So, when I first uh, started this job, um, I was about two weeks into the job, and I was told that there was a ban on import of mangoes from India was was coming in. So I was briefed about it, and I was told that. Uh, you know, there would be a problem because, you know, supermarkets wouldn't be able to supply mangoes. So I thought, OK, well, that's fine. You know, we'll why, deal why, with why was that the ban coming happens. in? Why was the ban coming in? Why was the ban coming why? in? So the ban was coming in because mangoes from India um, had fruit flies and larvae and there'd been years of interceptions 
of pests on mangoes and countless audits and uh, attempts to get the improvement in the plant health status of the mango had failed. So this was when we were in the EU. It was an EU regulation. And the EU had, had decided finally after years of interceptions that the only way to stop uh, this trade was to ban it because um, there were persistent interceptions which could threaten crops in Europe. So the ban came in around about April. And what we hadn't realised was it wasn't the supermarkets that were going to be impacted. It was corner shops in communities such as Leicester, Bradford, Southall, where there were South Asian communities who absolutely loved Alfonso mangoes, particularly from India. And they had very deep connections uh, to families back home that produced these mangoes, to the shops uh, in their community that sold them. And if you've ever smelt an Alfonso mango, it's like a heavenly perfume. So families would go to the corner shop and buy a whole tray of these mangoes and feast on them. And there was an annual mango festival in Leicester. And what we hadn't realised was that banning the mangoes would disproportionately affect these communities. So, so, so did, quickly, they, did they all um, write to their MPs or what, absolutely. what happened? So very, very quickly, uh, a political response was mobilised. The MP of Leicester was Keith Vaz at the time, uh, and he lobbied very hard into Parliament. We had a debate in the House of Commons. We had questions in Parliament and we had a very, very strong opposition from the Asian business community. We met with them, with the minister at the time, uh, because actually they thought it was really unfair and unnecessary. So we did explain to them that so there were these pests it? and diseases and that they really needed to do something about it. So we got them on board and they were fantastic and they really helped us reach back to India to all the producers and the suppliers. And we quickly came up with a solution to the mango problem, and that was a hot water treatment. So we developed with ferroscience a hot water dipping treatment, which would get rid of the pests. And my instructions from government were, get the ban lifted as quickly as you can. So we then started sharing this technology with India, some of the plant health inspectors went to Mumbai and they organized workshops and training. One of my colleagues went to do this in person and he was expecting kind of 30 or 40 traders to come uh, to this um, sort of sharing the, the, the new information in Mumbai. And about 500 people turned up. He was a bit overwhelmed but such was the strength that everybody wanted to know what they needed to do to get rid of the pests in the mangoes. And it anyway, does, it does finally, eight months after the ban, we got it lifted. I had to go to Brussels to argue the case and to provide the technical justification to get the ban lifted. So the ban was lifted and all was good for the mango festival the following season. Hurrah. I mean, it does remind me a bit of the day of the Triffids, um, you know, where in the end, the, the Triffids could just be sort of sprayed with salt water and they'd die. And, and in this case, you know, the, the highly complex science is, is essentially dunking them in hot water for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. But, <laughs> um, um, but we're all very pleased. And there was a lot of celebration from the community when the mangoes were back. Now we we've been um, uh, happily chatting, and people have, uh, some people have put questions, which I'll I'll come to in a second. Um, I uh, uh, th there's one that I was, <laughs> you know, sort of. I mean this seriously, but you know, is all this, uh, you know, plant health, um, you know, the the things that you're doing to keep diseases out of the country, are they kind of um, fiddling while Rome burns, you know, because uh, of climate change will just engulf everything. And, you know, um, I know that as a senior civil servant, you can't talk about government policy uh, other than to, uh, to sort of 
tell us what government policy is. But, you know, I, I can't help feeling that, you know, the, the biggest threat to plant health is presumably biodiversity loss generally and climate change and the way we live, which uh, where consumption is just uh, rampant consumption is just leading to sort of loss of loss of habitats. Well, I think it's finding the importance of plant health amongst all of those other things. So when we're developing policy about, you know, sustainable farming, about climate change, that we make sure that we're considering plant health. So, for example, you know, we've got this massive uh, target for increasing tree cover threefold um, during this parliament. So my job is to make sure that the source of those trees is biosecure so that we can all work together to make sure that we do have the trees to, uh, you know, deliver our net zero targets, but they come from a biosecure source and we're not introducing more problems. And it's definitely worth it. You know, we can have real impacts on tree health, on biodiversity, if we keep our plants and trees healthy we can keep pests and diseases out and we can eradicate them so it's definitely worth doing but we have to prioritize and we've got to all work together and that's why sharing the risk and responsibility with the public and with industry is so important so um when you say sharing the risk with with the public and industry i mean what what does that mean in practice well it means that everybody has their part to play so, oh, right. okay. you know, yeah. if, if the public don't take risks bringing things back from their holiday, if the industry work with us, which they do, uh, to make sure that the, the trades are safe and that the pathways for bringing in plants uh, are regulated and safe, then we can all do our bit to uh, make sure that we're protecting our plants and disease, uh, from pests and diseases. Thank you. It's yeah, up to absolutely. one of us. Uh, so um, uh, there's a question here. They're, they're all listed on my screen as uh, um, anonymous attendee. Um, uh, so uh, uh, so sorry about that, folks. But an anonymous atten attendee asks um, uh, whether, you know, uh, your views generally on tree planting as a climate fix, are people abusing the system? And that, uh, I mean, uh, my, my thought is that, yes, absolutely, people are abusing the system here and there. You know, you think about cutting down an enormous tree that has stored all that carbon and planting a couple of little saplings in its place. And that doesn't sequester very much carbon at all. Um, uh, you know, so that that is an abuse of the system for the people who are doing that. But on the other hand, large scale tree planting is good in all sorts of ways, isn't it? Because it, it, it sequesters carbon, but it also changes the climate. Absolutely. And there are lots of ways in which people can increase uh, tree cover so lots of grants are available and if you access a grant you get a lot of support and advice about what to plant where so that that tree really delivers uh, in terms of you know whether it's for carbon capture biodiversity and timber as well to make sure that we've got the right tree in the right place um, and then also um, you know trees aren't the only way to um carbon you know capture carbon peat is incredibly important as well so um i'm reminded you know when i studied botany at durham all those years ago my lecturer was david bellamy and he was the peat bog guru and he took us all over you know bog hopping looking at sphagnum telling us how important it was and this is absolutely where we are now you know lots of research and lots of investment in making sure we're re-wetting our peat bogs making sure that they're going to deliver carbon capture as well as trees so you know there are several ways of doing this yeah and the, the thing about peat is that uh, because it's uh, in a bog is acidic uh, then it doesn't decay so you're not releasing yeah. carbon back into the atmosphere it's all stored for uh, and that's a good thing uh, so there's a question here which I shall answer. Um, <laughs> uh, you might have a view as well, which is why do people eat so few vegetables, especially kids? What could we do about this? Um, I, with with my son, who is quite keen on vegetables, so this is a non-random sample of one. Okay, that's very unscientific. Um, 
we just didn't offer him an option. Um, and we didn't use vegetables as a sort of, if you eat these, then you can have sweets, uh, you know, which is something that a lot of parents, I think, do. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, it, it uh, becomes a sort of normal part of uh, uh, eating. And, uh, you know, that, that's, there's no choice. And then they get used to it. And I used to say to uh, my son, uh, you know, if he said he didn't like something, then I said, that's fine. You just have to try it nine times. And if you after trying it nine times, you still don't like it. I mean, he's now 24, nearly 24, and he still doesn't like raw tomatoes. But anyway, um, uh, so I, I think we screwed up in lots of ways, but that was one way we got it right. So that's uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you have anything you particularly want to add to that, Nicola. Well, I just just to say that when my kids were young, I worked at the National Vegetable Research Station, NVRS in Wellsbourne. So um, I was always bringing home various um, vegetables that were surplus to field trials, things like yellow courgettes. So they got to try all sorts of things. Uh, and thankfully, they loved their vegetables. But they were always quite excited to see um, you know, things like sort of pointy cauliflowers that were green and yellow courgettes. So maybe we just need to add a bit more excitement to our vegetables. Um, so still on the subject of vegetables, another anonymous attendee asks, um, are vegetables that are grown hydroponically as healthy as those grown in the soil? So hydroponic um, cultivation is essentially where you, you the, the roots are either sort of dipped in uh, nutrient fluid or they're... Um, uh, or they're sprayed in some cases. Um, so you haven't got loads of soil. Uh, sometimes they, you know, these things are in, in large kind of containers or wagons or whatever. Now, uh, I suppose the question is, you know, uh, is there, are there things in soil that aren't in the fluids that are used to uh, do hydroponic growing? And are those things beneficial potentially? Well, I mean, hydroponic production is incredibly high tech. So, you know, the, the, the water, the, the fluid that is used to feed the plants is it's very scientific so that it has all the kind of minerals and trace elements. Essentially, soil is the substrate and that's replaced by something like rock wool. So nutritionally, uh, I think you'd struggle to see any difference. Uh, and in fact, when you're growing in a hydroponic system, it's very controlled so often things like pests and diseases can be controlled without having to use chemicals. So, you know, they can be, you know, very good systems. They're, they're never, they can never be organic systems because they're not in soil. But actually a lot of tomato production, you know, they don't use any pesticides because it's a, it's a very well-regulated environment. Uh, and, you know, the crops are very good quality, tasty, very healthy. Um, here, here's a nice question. Um, uh, I, th I think it's a leading question for an, from um, um, uh, uh, another anonymous. Uh, do you think that our school system in the UK is teaching our young people what they need to know about plants? I think we can both agree no, right? Um, no. And, and, uh, but there's a rider to this, which is in your ideal world, what would we learn about plants? And uh, perhaps I'll start by, by saying I think that the kind of miracle of photosynthesis is something that I know from work I did at Bristol over years, that even science graduates don't really understand that, you know, plants are basically made out of um, water that comes up through the roots and carbon dioxide that comes in through the leaves. And I know it's in every exam, um, but people still sort of mostly don't get that. And then, you know, the fact that all our lives depend on plants uh, I think is is pretty vital. But then the kind of fantastic excitement about, uh, you know, the way that plants um, procreate, defend themselves, scatter their seeds, um, uh, you know, uh, all, all the kind of crazy things that plants get up to. Um, they do it differently from animals, but animals get all the limelight because they they sort of seem to move faster and more in a more exciting way. But I, I, I find plants much more exciting. And, and some of that excitement um, you know, given that we all depend on plants, should be part of the, the curriculum, I would say. Um, but what do you think? Absolutely. And when you look at things like uh, that wonderful television series, The Green Planet, um, that was uh, narrated by David Attenborough, that's the kind of thing that really showcases why plants are important. I mean, we know that young people care about the environment, 
they care about climate change. So perhaps we need to introduce uh, those concepts and the roles that plants play in them uh, and, you know, get people really excited about uh, environmental protection, which, which includes plants and, you know, other forms of wildlife. Now, there um, several... But it, it's always a struggle to get the curriculum updated. We have managed to get plant health into the GCSE curriculum. Um, but, um, you know, it takes years to do that. Yeah. Um, now, there are several questions here, uh, all on the same theme about soil. Uh, so isn't soil health a big part of the equation? Can you explain why soil is so important? Um, you know, there's the question we addressed about hydroponics, uh, but it is something you hear a lot about in, you know, in, in terms of sort of plant health and overall uh, productivity and so on, that the, the state of our soils seems to be declining. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, discuss. <laughs> Absolutely. Soil is crucial to plant health, particularly in trees. And what we've seen is, particularly in parts of the country where it's been very dry in recent years, we think that makes trees more susceptible to pests and diseases. Uh, particularly things like acute oak decline, where, you know, these large oaks are under environmental pressures, then it's, it's easier for them to get attacked by pests and diseases. And also soils incredibly complex. So it's full of fungi and microorganisms, some of which have beneficial effects on plant growth. It can actually stimulate growth. Um, and mycorrhizal fungi, which grow in the roots of many trees, are really, really essential to the health of those trees and the way in which they capture water and minerals. So um, in, the, in the, the wider environment, in the natural environment, uh, soil is incredibly important. And actually, um, scientifically, we've got a lot that we need to learn. I remember my father spending um, uh, an inordinate amount of time with the soil in the garden. He seemed to do um, more, more. You know, it's a bit like sort of watching a building being put up, and you spend all the time on the on the foundations, and then the rest of it goes up really quickly. Um, he spent ages kind of uh, getting the soil just right, and in those days, I think he probably used peat, which we shouldn't use now. Um, but he, uh, you know, and added manure, and there were, you know, all, all sorts of things being added to it to get it just right and and um uh you know you look at the state of some of the soil uh you know i've, I've been in the united states where it's been sort of you've had monoculture crops growing year after year after year in the same place and the, the state of the soil is you'd hardly call it soil i mean it's um a, a strange substance that uh, isn't kind of doesn't have that richness Soil erosion is, is a massive threat, particularly to sort of global food production. Um, and, you know, we have to do more to protect our soils, improve the organic matter, uh, improve the structure so that they can continue to sort of grow plants and crops for decades to come. Um, so there's a, there's a question here, which is, uh, I think we're coming to the the, the end of the questions, really. Well, I, perhaps this one will be quick, I think, because um, it might be a limited amount you want to say about it. Uh, Post-Brexit, someone is saying, it's now much more difficult to import and export seeds and plants. Um, they're saying there's no phytosanitary reason for this. Um, uh, in other words, no plant health reason, they say. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think this should be simplified? Well, unfortunately, there is a good plant health reason for this. Um, and, you know, many of our challenges come from Europe. So we have had to introduce stricter controls. For example, we were talking about xylella earlier on. It is more difficult to import hosts of xylella. Uh, and there are other pests which are a threat from Europe. Um, in, uh, for example, in seeds, we've got a virus disease of tomato tomato, brown fruit, rugose virus. So there are reasons. We, we, we don't introduce regulation unless there is a threat um, and uh, unless the country of origin can meet those phytosanitary regulations, I'm afraid it's not coming in. Um, I'm going to finish with one cheeky question, which is um, um, 
where, where do you stand on uh, artificial turf? Oh, I hate it. It depresses me. There's, it's got a Twitter feed all of its own. And it's. I saw the other day some pink plastic turf that somebody had laid in a garden. And it is depressing. If you imagine if it's green, a bird might come and think, oh, there's a nice lawn to go and find a worm. And then they're disappointed. So I think it's disappointing for wildlife. It's disappointing for plant life. And I think it's disappointing for people. But that's a personal of, view. And then and and they're made of plastic. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's not sustainable. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad we agree on that. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we're we're out of time. Thank you, and I, I apologise to the um, uh, those who haven't had a chance to uh, uh, have their questions answered. Um, there are there are quite a lot of questions now, but um, uh, that's life, I'm afraid. Um, uh, uh, I think Jack's going to join us in a second, but Nicola, I want to thank you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's someone uh, with her feet on the ground looking after the health of our uh, our plants on which we all depend. So, thank you. Over to you. Over to you, Jack. Thank you, Nicola. Jonathan, that was wonderful. And it was really great that you shared your knowledge with us and your excitement about, about plants. And a great reminder, I think, that we all have so much to learn still about, about the plant world. So thank you both very much for being with us tonight. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. Um, you can get Jonathan's books from our partner, Newham Books. There are some details about his titles in the chat there. Um, and please do join us for our forthcoming events. Next week on Monday, October the 17th, we have a 5 by 15 event. Uh, we have Philip Limbury speaking about animal welfare. And we also have the journalist Lucy Siegel, who will be talking about her book, Be the Ultimate Friend of the Earth. So not unrelated to some of the conversations we've been having tonight. Uh, and on October the 24th, the following Monday, we have Tom Mustill, who will be in conversation with Lucy jones about his book how to speak whale thank you very much for joining us this evening bye <laughs>